In the 21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we've got you covered. We're hardcore international relations nerds, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app, week after week. We're reading the news so you don't have to. We are The Elucidators. Everybody and welcome to another episode of the Elucidators. We are coming at you on Tuesday, September seventeenth. My name is Steve Halley. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Sumi Chatterjee. How's it going, Sums? Doing all right. How are you, Steve? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. And boy, do we have a spicy one for you this week, uh, Sumi? Do you want to set the table for us? Okay. Saturday, something bad happened in Saudi Arabia. Their largest oil processing plant was attacked. Immediately afterwards, uh, a Shia Zaidi rebel group called the Houthis. So yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. So, so, Houthis? Is that like a real thing? Or you just make that up? I swear to God it is. So the Houthis, <laughs> I'll, I'll back up. This large oil processing plant was apparently attacked by, by a group in Yemen. They are called the Houthis. Okay. The, Houth- the Houthis have been locked in a brutal civil war in Yemen. Yemen is a country that borders Saudi Arabia on its southwest for several years. This, the civil war in Yemen has become a massive staging ground for a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So to back it all up, big oil processing plant that ends, that contributes to 5% of global oil production was blown up ostensibly by drones and missiles by this Yemeni rebel group. Yeah, well, so this happened on Saturday and they immediately claimed credit for this attack, right? Yeah. And this was plausible because the Houthis have actually been trying to attack Saudi Arabian oil infrastructure all year and even longer than that, right? Yeah, into last year, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is a really spectacular level of success. We did not usually associate with ragtag militias in places like Yemen, right? Saudi Arabia has been fighting these, these Houthi rebels in, in Yemen. It's actually a little bit unclear what Saudi Arabia's endgame would be in Yemen, in this Yemeni civil war. Yeah, but, but they've sure dropped a lot of bombs. They have, and so has the United States. With United States aid, uh, there has been a massive civil war that has created the largest uh, humanitarian crisis in the world, actually. But it just didn't make any sense. And Secretary of State Pompeo immediately called BS on the Houthis taking credit for it. So who done it? So Yemen is to the southwest of, of this processing plant. Iran is to the northeast of the processing plant. Mm-hmm. All of the targets that were hit are on the northeast side of the processing plant. Hmm. which would mean that if the Yemenis did this, they aimed for the far side of the processing plant. Yeah, which you could do with drones conceivably uh, because you can steer drones, right? Uh, You probably are thinking of like those dinky little quadcopters um, that uh, you see flying around in parks (laughs) nowadays. Yes. Uh, These are a little different. These are a little bit more like um, 
unmanned aerial vehicles along the lines of the U.S. Predator drone, right? right. They shoot they're, missiles. They're like smaller jets. And sometimes these drones aren't, they're actually jet sized. They can be very large. They can be very large and carry quite a bit of firepower. Uh, but the Houthis to this point have not demonstrated this level of capability. Furthermore, uh, it appears that the Saudis um, shot down a number of cruise missiles coming from the north, uh, which would belie the Houthis' claim of credit for this uh, sort of coup against literally the world's most valuable square mile of real estate, this oil processing plant called Abkaik that basically directly refines 5% of the world's oil supply. And the damage that was done was not insignificant. Uh, no. There, the, mo- the most generous estimates that on repairing this oil processing plant is several weeks. Mm-hmm. The m- most news outlets are reporting that will take several months to, uh, to get the oil processing plant back up and running. That's right. Although that the Saudis have uh, managed to restore some capacity. And um, in addition to that... Uh, they have strategic reserves. The United States has re- strategic reserves. And also, um, there is some spare capacity in the United States to make up the shortfall. So this is not necessarily as devastating as it would have been, say, 30 years ago. But it right. is still a massive uh, success as far as this type of, attacks go- this type of attack goes. Um, some analysts have called it a new Pearl Harbor um, because this level of success is completely unprecedented. And the Saudis were completely unable to defend against it. They defended against some of the cruise missiles that were apparently coming from Iran, uh, but not all of them. And uh, you know they weren't able to shoot down any of the drones either. And if you look at the sort of uh, military satellite photography of these, this facility that was hit, you can see these super precise holes that were basically drilled into the side of these uh, refine, refining tanks uh, that are designed to remove sulfur from raw fuel and, and turn it into something that can be exported. So it's, the level of capability is very sophisticated. The success is extraordinary. Um, and it was really an eye-opening event for the entire world economy. In fact, uh, over the weekend after this was done, uh, I think oil jumped, what was it, 15%? Yeah, it jumped like 15% on Monday when markets opened. And today, Tuesday, September 17th, the prices have gone back down a bit, but they're still way up. Yeah, they're still way up. And and uh, this was the single biggest jump in oil prices, basically, since we've started tracking oil prices on a uh, minute-to-minute basis. So here's where we are then. There is this big oil processing plant in Saudi Arabia that, get, that gets attacked. Uh, participants in the Yemen civil war take responsibility, which seems unlikely at generously. It seems very unlikely. Mm-hmm. The Iranians who have the capabilities to do this kind of thing seem like the most likely uh, culprits behind the attack. They have denied that they have done this. The U S which is an ally of Saudi Arabia has out and out said that the Iranians have done this. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, has taken to Twitter saying that the U.S. is, quote, locked and loaded and ready to, to act pending Saudi, pending a Saudi confirmation that it was the Iranians. 
all of this is a big mess and it really comes down to one question. What happens when you have two pretty big powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran, locked in a long-term Cold War with lots of proxy wars? Iran and Saudi Arabia have been rivals for decades. They've never actually fought each other, but they've fought against each other all over the Middle East and North Africa. Yeah, and I think Yemen is the most spectacular in in a, not in a good sense, but in a sense in terms of just raw size of spectacle, spectacular example of this proxy conflict. In that, it's just one of the world's worst conflict zones. Uh, the Saudis have been bombing the Houthi rebels who took over the Yemeni capital, uh, I guess, four years ago. For four years, um, they've conducted an aerial bombing campaign uh, against the Houthi rebels who are. Shia Muslims and backed therefore like by the Iran. yeah yes. backed by the Iranians so they've been bombing these guys for four years they've also instituted a blockade of Yemeni ports uh, basically resulting in I think fifteen of Yemen's thirty million people being in danger of starvation that's right, that's right. It's, which is just a staggeringly high number um, and in addition uh, we've we've learned from the UN. Uh, that 1.1 million of Yemen's 30 million people actually are infected with cholera, which is you know just a devastating disease that kills people really quick. So that number is going to go down. It is really a catastrophe. And the blockade you mentioned is stopping humanitarian aid from getting to these to the Yemenis. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the main guy responsible for prosecuting this war against the Houthi rebels is Mohammed bin Salman, um, who is Saudi Arabia's new leader. And he's a pretty young guy, right? Yeah, he's, uh, he is young and he is viewed, was viewed until the last couple of years as a big step forward in terms of social progress, becoming a little bit more Western. Uh, and if you look back at news stories and editorials from a couple of years ago, when he looked to be ascendant, there was in the West, he was generally viewed positively. Right. Because he's done stuff like um, allow women to drive and he's opened movie theaters in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a theocracy, right? So it's a very, very conservative religious society, uh, Sunni Islam, and it's a special version of Sunni Islam called Wahhabism, where basically you have rule by the House of Saud. Uh, this is not a democracy in any way, shape, or form. And it's in sort of concert with the conservative imams or religious leaders um, in, in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia was known for requiring women to be escorted by a male chaperone at all times in public, forcing women to wear the veil, uh, executing people in public. Uh, not a fun bunch of guys, right? Right. So these, these kind of reforms, you know, in the West, you take something like women can drive entirely for granted, but these are not insignificant things within the context of Saudi culture. Yeah, not at all. So then the question is, Steve, you know, I said the bloom started to come off the Mohammed bin Salman, the MBS rose. What else happened? What happened that this has started to turn sour? Right. Well, <sighs> Mohammed bin Salman is well known for ordering the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who was a noted Saudi journalist who worked for the Washington Post and lived in the United States for, I think, several decades. 
Right. He was he a wasn't. permanent citizen. Yeah. Well, he was not a citizen, but he was a permanent Sorry, he was resident. a permanent resident. resident yeah. Right. And, and um, the, the Trump administration, when this happened, uh, in, I believe, the Turkish embassy in Istanbul. Is that right? I think it was a Saudi embassy in Istanbul, yeah. Okay. It's Saudi embassy in Istanbul. That's right. There wouldn't be a Turkish embassy in Istanbul. Um, the Saudi embassy in Istanbul uh, basically said, well, we don't know. Uh, we're not going to do anything about this. Because, well, uh, Ben Salman is an ally, and there are some suggestions that Trump's family, including his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, may have business connections in Saudi Arabia that could be adversely affected um, should something bad happen to Mohammed bin Salman. Um, so nothing happened, uh, but that I think, I think that was a real eye-opener worldwide for the nature of... Uh, what, what this guy, Ben Salman, is really about. Yes, he is a modernizer, but he is also totally ruthless and a thug and an assassin. Right. right? There was also uh, several weeks, months, where <laughs> he put m dozens of his family members in a prison of sorts. Now, prison of sorts means the, uh, I believe it was the Four Seasons Hotel. Right. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> With room service, but they were not allowed to leave. That's right. the main thing. And part of it was that they would also have to pay. They had to give up some, they had to basically pay their way out of the Four Seasons Hotel. Yeah, no, it was a shakedown. It was literally a shakedown. Yeah. This guy, Bin Salman, is basically a Saudi mob boss who is now in control of Saudi Arabia. And yes, he is doing some things to liberalize the country. He wants to bring the country into the 21st century, but he is also not doing it in a nice way to put it mildly. He's not doing it a nice way in Saudi Arabia or outside of Saudi Arabia. Right. And the outside of Saudi Arabia is what brings us back to Yemen. Bin Salman has been prosecuting a brutal civil, a brutal war in, in Yemen, as we talked about, created the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. What's more is that it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't appear that he has any intention of ceasing to fight proxy wars with Iran all over the Middle East and North Africa. No. And the Iranians, for their part, ha are old hands at this. They're very good at cultivating proxy groups. Um, it's not just the Houthis in Yemen. They also have Hezbollah uh, basically throughout the Middle East and, and even worldwide, but primarily in, in uh, Lebanon and Syria. Um, they have uh, militias in Iraq uh, who at one point, we're basically operating alongside coalition troops to deal with Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, and they also have groups in North Africa. They have groups surrounding the Saudis and the Israelis, another US ally, from every direction. Uh, because they have head, uh, ambitions to be a regional he hegemon in the Middle East and North Africa. So when you say regional hegemon, Steve, what does that mean exactly? That means that they want to be large and in charge, and they're not going to brook any challengers, including the Israelis or the Saudis. They want to basically be the boss of the Middle East. They want to extend their influence into every country in the Middle East and run things the way they used to for thousands of years, actually. <laughs> the Iranians have a very long imperial tradition uh, from thousands of years ago, uh, and also a religious tradition, a very powerful religious tradition of Sunni Islam, or excuse me, Shia Islam, whereby uh, the Shias and the Sunnis have been stuck in sort of a religious cold war for centuries now. And 
Some would say that the Saudi versus Iranian proxy conflict is just the latest modern manifestation of this religious war that goes back literally, I think, 13 centuries. All right. Okay, so that's the, the long view. Let's bring it back to more recent times. The, the current president of the United States, Donald Trump, very famously called uh, <laughs> the Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal uh, negotiated by uh, President Obama's Secretary of State, John Kerry, along with European allies, the worst deal in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he very famously removed the U.S. from the, uh, from the Iran deal. Now, just to, we won't go into all the details of the JCPOA as it's, uh, as it's called, that's the Iran deal, but the long and the short of it was for decades, the, the United States security, national security apparatus has been reporting that we're six months away from a nuclear bomb, from, mm-hmm. uh, from an Iranian nuclear bomb. Right, and this is supposedly part of their ambitions to be a regional hegemon. If they're able to develop nuclear capability, then the United States will have a lot more trouble stopping them should they decide to start a regional war against the Saudis or the Israelis. Not unlike what has happened uh, vis-a-vis North Korea on the Korean Peninsula. Right. Nuclear weapons would also in- would ensure the survival of the Iranian state in That's the same right. way that in the same way that uh, North Korea has they're they're married to the nuclear weapons because it ensures their survival. Um, the the thing about the JCPOA is that what it basically did was it it bought 15 years of negotiation time to try and get the Iranians to stop their nuclear program altogether and to try and work out some sort of other political solution that might tamp down tensions in the Middle East. Trump comes into office, tears up the, the Iran nuclear deal, sorry, withdraws the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal and imposes really brutal sanctions on Iran that are affecting their economy in, uh, in pretty serious ways. Right. This is the quote-unquote maximum pressure campaign. Uh, and the idea is basically to force the Iranians back to the table and get them to stop supporting all of these proxy militias and things like this throughout the Middle East and North Africa, and getting them to stop their regional hegemonic ambitions was not actually part of the original nuclear deal. And so the Trump administration uh, was not satisfied with this. They felt that they needed to put the Iranians in a box economically and start really wrecking their economy with these sanctions, which have been very effective, uh, particularly in taking Iranian oil off the market. And that was a major source of foreign exchange for the Iranian regime. So the Iranian people uh, have been suffering from a, frankly, a, a pretty bad economy now for a couple of years. So it's, it's very clear that the U.S. is on the side of, of the Saudis. The U.S. wants to hurt the, the Iranian regime, would like to see the uh, current Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the president would like to see regime change in Iran. However, it's a hard sell when you say, hey, we want you, Iran, to operate under a different political regime when at the same time you are backing Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia, who's supposed to be a modernizer, but in fact is is prosecuting a brutal war in Yemen and is doing things like killing journalists 
it should also be said about the Khashoggi assassination that he was hacked up with meat cleavers. Yeah, that's right. He was strangled and then hacked up and uh, I guess uh, taken out of the embassy in pieces, which, which is like quite literally mob boss type stuff. Yeah, this this is not this is not schoolyard bullying. No, MBS is our horse in this race, but uh, we can make no he neither he nor we can make any claims to moral superiority here, to put it mildly. And and one might even say that the Saudis are no better than the Taliban um, as far as their behavior um, or or attitudes towards uh, you know enlightened uh, cultural mores or anything like that. But this is like, just as like a matter of, of basic uh, politics, Yemen is getting torn apart. You know, of the many negative uh, outcomes from the 2003 American invasion of Iraq, Iraq has been in shambles and has had a very difficult time getting back on its feet because of the political vacuum that gets created in these smaller states. You take out... <laughs> You take out uh, the existing, the existing uh, political structure, the leaders go, all of a sudden there's a rush to fill the vacuum. The Saudis go in, the Iranians come in, you have the, the, up, the growth of groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS in places like Yemen and Iraq. And then you have the US involved, you have the Russians supplying the Iranians with the defense system. This is a colossal mess with a lot of big and bigger power states interests at play and these small states especially their citizens are getting absolutely brutalized for it yeah it's uh, in no way a good situation so just to recap um we have the saudis and the iranians locked in a proxy conflict uh, basically throughout the greater middle east uh the worst spot that uh, this sort of proxy war is happening in is currently in Yemen. The uh, Saudis just got hit really hard, uh, taking down basically half of their oil capacity, which amounts to 5% of global oil production over the weekend in kind of this crazy bolt from the blue asymmetric strike. Uh, Asymmetric meaning offense (laughs) is now much easier than defense with new technologies like drones and cruise missiles. Um, the Iranians are almost certainly involved, but we are waiting. We're not bombing the Iranians or any of their people. We're waiting. What are we waiting for? Well, this is, Steve, what you basically, you, I think that was a, a fantastic summary. And I think what it does is illustrate a phrase that international relations nerds use all the time is, this is the fog of war. We are currently in the fog of war. We don't know... We're waiting on confirmation for who, who attacked what and under what circumstances and what's going to happen. Right. And, it gets, and it gets to the, you, your summary is a, is a good jumping off point because we've been talking about cold wars and proxy wars. But if as we're, in, we're suggesting and Mike Pompeo has flat out said, this was the Iranians, the cold war just got hotter. Yep. It just got hotter, and it seems like the Iranians are running a really big risk here to do this. Um, I think their assumption, which is probably well-founded, is that neither the Saudis nor the United States actually wants to fight a war against the Iran. The thing is that the Iranians don't want to fight either, right? So why are they running this crazy risk? It seems just like uh, a very weird thing to do at this juncture. 
Right. It's also, I think uh, it's a good moment to talk about at the end of September, the, the UN General Assembly is going to meet in Manhattan mm-hmm. and leaders from all over the world, including uh, Rouhani, the leader, the political leader of, uh, of, uh, of Iran is supposed to be there. There were talks that uh, French President Emmanuel Macron was going to try and push to get uh, Iran uh, back to try and get sanctions relief for Iran to try and help the Iranians. But after these attacks, this puts this puts that on hold, if not kills it altogether. I don't actually know who kill who sent these attacks. Like I don't understand why the Iranians would do this because it only hurts them in terms of now inviting more external pressure. Right. So here's kind of another interesting angle to this gigantic cauldron full of angles, basically, (laughs) which is that the Iranian regime is not necessarily in agreement with itself, right? Um, It's not clear that Iran is a unitary actor in this instance. And what I mean by that is, like every country, the Iranian government is, has factions, right? There is a conservative faction uh, led by the supreme leader of Iran, who is uh, Khamenei. Uh, he's the supreme ayatollah. So yeah. he is actually in charge of everything in Iran, ultimately. And the Revolutionary Guards, who are religious radicals and form most of Iran's military capabilities, they are the ones who are responsible for arming all of these rebel groups and proxy forces throughout the Middle East and North Africa. They're the ones in charge of the missiles and the drones on the one hand, inside Iran. On the other hand, inside Iran are the moderates who are represented by the president, Hassan Rouhani, uh, and perhaps the nuclear negotiators and people like that who actually want Iran uh, to step back from the precipice of war and kind of rejoin the international economy, get sanctions relief, play ball with the West, um, probably cause those um, uranium centrifuges uh, that had been started back up to spin back down uh, and, and sort of rejoin the international community and have Iran develop economically. So it could be the, the case that some faction within Iran, most likely the Revolutionary Guards, actually went ahead and did this itself. And Steve, we, the U.S. has labeled the Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization. Correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, they're, I guess, more of a paramilitary organization. They are part of the Iranian regime. But again, they are very conservative to the point of being, I would say, religious radicals. And they are the ones who are spearheading Iran's uh, ambitions to be a regional hegemon, to be an expansionist power, to be a revisionist power, and to sort of upset the apple cart in the Middle East, kick the United States out, uh, defeat Israel, uh, and take over Saudi Arabia. These guys are ideologues. They're hardcore dudes, and they want to fight. So it could be the case that they took these missiles and drones that they actually control and without anybody's permission, other than the Supreme Leader, but not necessarily with the permission of Iran's civilian government, they went ahead and did this strike themselves. Right. But Steve, this is like, this is again, this is why we're in the fog of war. We don't, <laughs> we don't know who launched this or who ordered it, right? Yeah. I think that our government knows. And I think that the Saudi government knows. But the Saudis are not coming out and accusing Iran directly. And one of the reasons for that is that 
you know, in this Cold War, this with all, in this Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia, part of the reason for that Cold War is that neither one of these countries want to get involved in a direct war with the other because yeah. it would be a massive war. Yeah, it would be really bad. Um, the Saudis probably don't want to fight because they're not actually good at fighting. Um, they're really good at bombing rebel groups because they have a bunch of uh, U.S. warplanes that they bought from the United States. And they spend a ton of money on their military. They, I think, have the third largest military budget in the entire world. I think that's right. But in terms of actual offensive or defensive capacity, they don't have any. <laughs> like, <laughs> it should also be noted here that in a rare moment of bipartisan unity on an issue, uh, the Congress has passed bills ceasing arms sales to the Saudis over their involvement of Yemen, which has been vetoed by President Trump. Right. Um, now, for Trump's part, he has made threatening noises uh, at the Iranians saying that the U.S. military is locked and loaded, but he has also said... We're waiting to see whether the Saudis want to do something. Uh, if they want to do something, they're going to have to go in first, number one. And number two, they're going to have to pay for our involvement, which is crazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's crazy that he said that because they're allies and we're supposed to be good allies and actually assist them. But he's saying, well, you know, uh, that all depends on how much you're willing to pay us, uh, which is not really how alliances are supposed to work. They're not supposed to be that explicitly quid pro quo, right? But in this instance, they are. It's, uh, it's really unclear what the next steps are because here's, here's the range of possibilities. One is, and this is weird, nothing. Nothing is going to change. Mm -hmm. That the Yemen civil war will continue on. Yemenis will suffer. Iran and Saudi Arabia will continue fighting their cold proxy wars that they have for years and years, the status quo remains. Another thing that could happen is that the U.S. could decide to go in. So far, the president has been famously reserved about initiating or escalating wars, but yeah. this might be the breaking point. All of which, I just want to say this one thing. Remember last week's episode where we started off talking about the firing of National Security Advisor John Bolton? Mm -hmm. ostensibly over two big disagreements with the president. Number one, John Bolton didn't want to negotiate with the Taliban. President wanted to. And the other was that John Bolton wants to go after Iran hard and the president doesn't want to. Yeah. Well, after Bolton was fired, we then found out the president uh, had canceled negotiations with the Taliban, reverting to Bolton's position. And with the locked and loaded tweet, it at least has the appearance that Trump might be willing to escalate in Iran, which again reverts to John Bolton's position and John Bolton is fired for policy disagreements. Here's the thing though. Trump is what we in the business like to call a chicken hawk. And what that means is that uh, instead of speaking softly and carrying a big stick, he talks really loudly and carries a small stick. It's pretty clear by now that uh, most of his threats are idle and he doesn't actually like fighting at all. Uh, he came into office promising to wind down uh, America's military conflicts abroad, uh, which is a fairly popular position. And I think he is not interested in starting new conflicts, just fundamentally, unless he absolutely has to. We've seen this in North Korea. We've seen this in Afghanistan. And we're now seeing it in Iran. Uh, despite his incendiary rhetoric, that's all it seems to be, rhetoric. 
Um, and I think the Iranians know this and are basically daring him to do something. When he came out and said, well, the Saudis are going to have to go first and they're going to have to pay us. I also think that uh, we have to remember that uh, Trump's core professional competency is actually as a landlord. And so he sees, <laughs> he sees most of uh, uh, America's allies as tenants, not allies, uh, which means that uh, they owe us for services rendered. <laughs> um, or, or more, more properly, they owe him directly. Um, so uh, this is a pretty unusual way to manage uh, a system of global alliances, but that seems to be what we're doing now. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's actually not clear as, as of time of recording what, if anything, is going to happen. I would imagine that the Saudis are going to respond in some way to this provocation because they can't afford not to. I mean, they just got hit really, really hard, uh, particularly because... Saudi Aramco, which is the uh, world's largest private company and um, Mohammed bin Salman's main asset, he was planning to take it public. Right. There was an IPO, initial public offering that was in the works. Yeah. yeah. And he, he was getting ready to basically take this company public and raise literally trillions of dollars. It would have been the world's largest IPO in global history by like a pretty wide margin and use that money to turn around and invest in Saudi Arabia's future uh, by developing things like a manufacturing base and uh, creating new universities and things like this. He, like, it, he has a progressive agenda in, in some respects. <laughs> Economically, he certainly does, right? Um, but now Saudi Aramco's main asset is literally on fire thanks to Iran. So like, this is a devastating blow to Bin Salman's ambitions. It's, it's a little bit tough to entirely understand what coordination is happening between the Saudis and the U.S. Because so far, the U.S. is doing all the tough talk for the Saudis. And the Saudis still have not declared that they were hit by Iran on this. Mm -hmm. To your point, because if they declare that it was Iran, which they kind of have to because the U.S. has already said it was Iran, then they have to react. And it's a question of what is their reaction? What is the, how do they calibrate that reaction, right? Yeah. They want to hit hard so that they save face and they show that they're not just going to take it. They won't just get hit in the gut and then go home crying. So they have to show some, some reaction. But what is the proper reaction? Is it hitting, uh, is it hitting Persian uh, oil facilities? What is the commensurate response? Yeah. And furthermore, do they want to start something that they might not be able to finish? particularly if the United States doesn't come through on their behalf, which actually seems like a possibility at this point. It could be that Trump just leaves them holding the bag because he's, you know, famously erratic. And, you know, if he doesn't like how much they pay us for services rendered, maybe he'll just be like, well, you know, we're coming up on an election year. I don't want to do this. It's too much of a risk. You guys do it. In right. which case, I already said the Saudis... They, they spend a lot of money on their military, but they're not actually that good at fighting. They're great at bombing rebel groups, but fighting Iran, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Well, part of it, to your point about uh, Trump's motivations, we are 14 months, 13 and a half months out from the U.S. presidential election. I don't think that this, there are signs, let me back up. The strongest part of Trump's reelection claim is that, is, the, is that the American economy is going very well. It is good, it is strong, it is improved from when he took over 
after yeah. a problem. Like you know that. what's bad for the economy? Raise, raised energy prices. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a global oil crisis, which would absolutely follow any kind of larger scale military skirmish between the uh, military conflict between the Persians and the Saudis would absolutely jack up oil prices. So yeah, yeah a lot of the, uh, a lot of Trump's appeal in 2016 was that he remembered the forgotten Americans. Well, a lot of the forgotten Americans, quote unquote, they're, they're drivers. They have to drive around and they are a lot of their, their, their pocketbook math goes by how much they're going to spend at the pump. That's so right. Jacking up the prices on oil because of a fight halfway around the world in a part of the world, by the way, most Americans don't want any part of it. This is bad for, for Trump's domestic, domestic political agenda. Yeah, it's, it's bad political math. And, and so this, the Iranians, again, being, I think, canny observers of global politics understand this and they have decided some faction or the entire Iranian government has decided to run a pretty finely calculated risk. Um, they've hit Saudi Arabia very hard. There's no question about that. They've done real damage to Mohammed bin Salman's ambitions, uh, but they've done it in such a way that um, it can't be walked back um, by either side. And they've done it in such a way to demonstrate the capacity to do more um, should it become necessary. They can spike global oil prices in a way that will hurt Trump personally during his re-election campaign, which he needs to win to avoid prosecution in the United States. <laughs> and so guess what? They now have more leverage at the bargaining table. The other thing is, Steve, on the Saturday's attacks, were, as we mentioned before, this was the biggest one. They've been building up. They've been attacking oil tankers. That's right. And the Yemenis have been from the Houthis have been sending uh, missiles and drones into attack various oil processing plants since last year. This has been escalating. This could this this is on trend for the Iranian uh, Iranian agenda in attacking the Saudis. Yeah. But again, if this Cold War goes hot, this is bad for everybody. It's bad for everybody. Nobody actually wants it to go hot. Um, and so what has happened is the Iranians, as you, as you have said, have been jabbing, jabbing, jabbing. This was a haymaker that landed on the button and knocked the Saudis down and I think rang the United States' bell, basically. <laughs> um, the Iranians are demonstrating that, yes, they can fight back in a way that will hurt us really badly. Um, and how much do we really want this quote unquote maximum pressure campaign? That's the question they're asking. And it is unclear what our answer is gonna be. Right, now the US can't exactly back down, <laughs> can't take off sanctions either because this is the point where we say, well, oh, we wanted to apply maximum pressure unless you hurt our friends, the Saudis too much, in which case pressure's off. The Americans yeah. can't do that either. That's a bad look, yeah. So. Bottom line is, this is a big deal, a really big deal. Um, we've never seen anything quite like this before, and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, it could go any number of ways, as you said, but uh, we'll certainly be talking about it in future weeks, I'm sure. Absolutely. All right. All and right. with that, hey. I, think, I think we're done. Yeah, we'll see you next week. 
Hello, valued listeners. If you like what you're hearing on The Elucidators, please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast. If you really love us, please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store, be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review, because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. And if you have comments or questions, you can email us at allonewordtheelucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show.